Good morning, how are y'all today? My name is Devontae McLean. I am a member of the Bertrand Community Group. And uh, today, the text that Tanner asked me to read is Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. And I'll give you a moment to find it. If you have the Bible here, it's on page 848. So again, that's Mark 12, 18 through 27. As I was looking for it in the Bible, I had the realization, being the scripture reader is like being a Christian hype man for Tanner, getting everybody's hearts ready. So I'll go ahead and start. Again, that's Mark 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and you are quite wrong. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Thank you, Dev. I couldn't ask for a better hype man, dude. You appreciate that. Hey, welcome back. My name is Tanner House. If you are a guest, thank you for being with us. I'm the lead pastor here, and there is a connect card under your chair. If you'd take a minute, fill that out. Let us know how we can connect with you, how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV translation of the Bible. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Matt or Chad will, will be happy to bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, that is yours to keep. So we're going to hop back into our, to our Mark series. Um, we're still in what is known as the Passion Week. We're going to be here for several more weeks. This is the week uh, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry on, on, a, on a little donkey. And this is what we refer to as Palm Sunday because the crowd was waving palm branches and shouting uh, Hosanna as he rides into town. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of God, King David's descendant. They are worshiping Jesus. And so that starts on a Sunday and it ends with Jesus being crucified and resurrected a week later. So we've seen Jesus ride into town. And then the next day on a Monday, we see Jesus go to the temple and cleanse the temple of the money changers and those that are extorting people for profit. So then the next day, Tuesday, we see the beginnings of a lot of conversations in which Jesus' authority is going to be questioned, which Jesus is going to be challenged, um, and the implications for the last several texts in our walk through Mark is this. The people, the Jewish nation, they're getting the Messiah that they are promised. 
But for many, for many in the Jewish nation, they're not getting the Messiah that they're wanting. Justin Smith told us a few weeks ago, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. And so after Jesus' activity on Sunday and Monday, he has aroused the anger of and the frustration of the, the Jews in power. They're thinking, here's this guy. He seems insanely popular with the people. He's turning the people away from our influence and our power on society. And they're starting to follow him. This just will not do. Mark chapter 12, 12 says that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but were afraid of what the people would do if they arrested him. So we've seen Jesus interact with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they're trying to trap Jesus, and they, uh, they want to arrest him, so they're trying to catch him in some contradiction so they can arrest him, and they can't get him to make the slip-up that they need. So now we're getting another group of folks today. They're, they're known as the Sadducees. More on who they are in a minute. They're coming up to talk with Jesus. And keep one thing in mind as we walk through this text. This is during the time of Passover. So there are a lot of people in Jerusalem witnessing these encounters. So the stakes seem to be really high. I've been really looking forward to this text. Because I think it speaks to a lot of real tangible human questions, human fears about what happens to me when I die. What happens to me when I die? What is after this? What is the afterlife like? Is there even an afterlife? What's that going to be like? I think there's a lot of fear around death and a lot of fear that is rooted in the unknown and uncertainty. Anybody else relate to this? Just not really knowing, not really comfortable thinking about it? think things would be a lot easier for, easier for us emotionally and cognitively if we could just explain some things a little easier. And my hope this morning is that this text will aid in alleviating some of our fears and doubts and some of our anxieties about death and what's next. Especially if you would claim to be a Christian in this room. At the very least, I'm hoping this text will lead us to more love for the scriptures and more delight and enjoyment of Jesus. So I'd ask just if you're fearful about life and if you're fearful about death at any level, and I think every single one of us are, if we're honest with ourselves, we have some of that in us. Just ask that you really consider this morning the words of Jesus and consider again what the resurrection of Jesus means for you as a believer. So let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to dive into this text. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, thank you that you are no longer in that grave, Lord, but that you did indeed rise victorious. So may we learn how to walk in light of that. May we learn how to walk out of the implications of the resurrection to us. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark 12, beginning in verse 18, it says, And Sadducees came to him, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, So let's first get acquainted with these men, the Sadducees. We don't know a ton about them because all the stuff that they wrote during their time on earth didn't survive. And the stuff that was written about them outside of the Bible uh, 
it was written by other groups of people, people that didn't like them, people that weren't aligned with them. So it may be more like tabloid gossip than actual historical fact. What we do know, based on some of the writings from the time from early, early, early historians like Josephus, is that they were uh, Aristotle. Uh, aristocratic class of Jews. They were politically liberal. They would cooperate with the Roman government, which was a no-no if you were a Jew. But they would cooperate as Jews with the Romans in order to kind of preserve their position in society. So they're politically liberal, but they're also very theologically conservative. They were extremely tied to the temple and what goes on at the temple. So Jesus' activity from Monday where he cleansed the temple, they didn't like that. That hurt them in their pockets and it hurt them in their pride. So they really don't like Jesus. Further, they only accepted the writings of Moses, which would be called the Pentateuch, which in English is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They only accepted those five as authoritative, so they didn't value the the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah to Malachi in your Bible, they, they didn't view those guys as, as authoritative. And they didn't really care for the wisdom literature, you know, Job, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes, the Proverbs. They, they didn't like that at all. They, they didn't think it was authoritative. They also didn't believe in angels or demons. Their view of the afterlife isn't really discussed. They probably believed in heaven, but to what extent really isn't known. And they definitely don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, which verse 18 tells us. So what all of that means is they don't believe that a Messiah will rise from the dead. They were a lot like the Herodians that we saw a couple weeks ago in that they were essentially Jewish in name only. Uh, Jew-ish. <laughs> Thank you. Um, They weren't waiting on a promised Messiah because they didn't really think they needed one. They had a strong view of free will. They rejected the idea that a person is independently body and soul. So let me explain that a little bit. What Christians believe that the Bible teaches is this. That a person has a body and that the person is a soul. This body is temporary. But our souls are eternal. So when we die... If we're Christians, if we're in Christ, our souls go to Jesus and our bodies remain asleep until Christ returns and raises us up and gives us a new and perfect and restored resurrected body. And if we're not in Christ, our souls go to hell. The Sadducees then believe something completely different. They believe the soul died with the body. The Sadducees didn't leave much of a lasting mark on history. They seem to have shown up around like the second century BC and a few years after the cross and resurrection of Jesus in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Roman emperor Titus, who is not the Titus in your Bible. Uh, This guy would come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and in doing so, the Sadducees just ceased to exist. But for today, they're here. They have this encounter with Jesus, trying to test Jesus, and they're also trying to make their rivals, the Pharisees, look foolish. The text says they don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. 
Jesus does. So they're trying to disprove Jesus and disprove the Pharisees in one fell swoop. This is the classic two birds with one stone scenario for, for the Sadducees. So they approach Jesus and they ask him a question. They say in verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, keep in mind, they don't believe that the resurrection exists. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they're setting Jesus up with this question concerning marital laws. This is called a leveret marriage. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother... Uh, shall go into her and, and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this is super weird for us as Western-minded people, but what is actually happening in this familial first century ancient Jewish society that is the nation of Israel, God was actually creating a way for family lines to continue. And so the Sadducees present this really absurd hypothetical scenario to Jesus. Jesus, this woman had a husband. Her husband had six brothers. The first husband dies. The oldest one dies, leaving no heir. Then his brother marries her. He dies. And the same thing happens all the way down to the seventh brother. Seven brothers die, no sons are born to any of them, and then the wife dies. Jesus, whose wife is this woman in the resurrection? That's their question. My question is, what is going on in this family? All these men are dying, married to this lady. Netflix needs to pick this up and do a docuseries on this crew. Anyways, uh... So the Sadducees approach Jesus with this really weird hypothetical scenario. They're using Scripture to attempt to show how absurd they think our physical bodily resurrection is. So just to summarize their point, provided that their assumption is correct that married life continues into the afterlife, two husbands would have been perfectly sufficient for them to try to make their point. But they just want to accelerate it. So they're like, hey, seven husbands. Seven husbands. So they're like, Jesus, when the dead arise. And they say it with some level of sarcasm. I can just hear it. Jesus, when seven arise. Uh, this woman is going to have seven husbands. But that cannot be, Jesus. She can only have one. But which one? The assumption of the day by the Pharisees and other rabbis is that the afterlife was just essentially a better version of life here and now. It would be new and improved, better and improved, and include things like, like marriage. And here we have Jesus, 
who has already by this point in Mark mentioned his resurrection at least three times prior to this. So the Sadducees approach him and they think they have him cornered. Because the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, don't explicitly mention a physical resurrection, a future bodily resurrection. And look at how Jesus responds. We're going to take this in kind of a formulaic approach, step-by-step sort of way, as Jesus just completely dismantles their argument. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus first confronts them on on a theological level. Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. And because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know God and how powerful he is. You don't know the scriptures, so you don't know the power of God. All right, I'm going to get a little ranty here for just a quick second. Um, On a real surface level, they do something that a lot of popular celebrity pastors do. They use the Bible. They use scripture for selfish gain. They misapply the Bible to manipulate people. They misapply the Bible or misinterpret the Bible to get people to give money or pad their numbers and they tickle ears. Man, there's no truth in this approach. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about the need for repentance. It's merely a watered-down, self and safe glorification, self-preserving, safe message and when there is no truth there is also no grace because you are never ever confronted with your sin before a holy and just God and therefore you are never made aware of your need for a savior and if that's the case you are never led to the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection and the beauty of grace and mercy of Jesus to you It is simply an attempt at getting you to change your behavior. It is simply an attempt at self-glorification and simply an attempt to try to get you to be the best version of you. But if you're never shown Jesus in, in the preaching of the word, you are not going to be the best you. Because you may sit in these churches and you may listen to these messages and you may even feel so great about yourself after doing so. But you are still a sinner in need of grace. You are still a sinner in need of forgiveness. If you're listening to preachers like this, man, first, I just beg you to stop. And secondly... If you are unwilling to stop, I'd just ask you to consider how much do they actually point you back to the Bible? How much do they actually point back to the Scriptures and allow the Scriptures to speak for itself? But I digress. i got to get back to this. <laughs> so our text today, the Sadducees are trying to use Scriptures to, to further their own position in society. It's a big power grab. This passage that they're referencing in Deuteronomy has no bearing on the afterlife. And Jesus confronts these religious elites in their own area of expertise, the law of Moses. They misunderstand the scriptures, and in doing so, they misunderstand God completely. Man, I want to stop for a second 
and just offer maybe a, a gentle pastoral caution. If you're a Christian and you don't know your Bible, number one, I'd tell you, don't sweat it. Grace to you. It's okay to be where you're at. I'd also tell you it's not okay to, be, to stay where you're at. It's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. You cannot rightly apply God's word to your life if you don't know what it says. And if you don't know what it says, you won't know how to apply the scriptures to your life. You will miss out on some deep and personal, personal intimacy with God who loves you, who created you, and made salvation possible through him. Don't misunderstand and don't misuse scripture. Some people do so intentionally, some people do so unintentionally. But if you don't know how to read your Bible, it isn't like reading any other book. There's a lot to it, I'm aware. If you don't know how to do it, if you don't know where to start, if you don't know where to go, or how to read it for all it's worth, Man, we want to help. There are men and women in this church who would love to sit down with you over breakfast, over coffee, over whatever, and just get into the scriptures with you. The danger is this. If we misunderstand the scriptures, the danger is that we would then misunderstand God. And if we misunderstand God, It'll be hard to rest in our identities as sons and daughters, loved and chosen and blameless, set apart before him. Because we're always trying to navigate this tension of trying to clean ourselves up and make us look better and do just enough to appease him. But when you really understand the scriptures, you see a God who chose to the cross on your behalf. To love you enough to go and die the death that you deserved. Don't misunderstand the scriptures. Jesus tells these Sadducees, you misunderstand God. You misunderstand his power. God is able by his power to raise the dead. And in doing so, he is also able to raise us up to where marriage is no longer necessary. Look at what happens next. Mark 12, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, don't fret. This one isn't fun for me to, to say because I love, love, love my wife. I love getting to be married to Kendra. I love the life that we have together. But when we die, when we are with Jesus... We are not going to be married anymore, at least not in the way we're married here. And it's not a breakup, like I'm not, we're not ending things. Uh, but the original purpose, the original God-given intention of marriage, none of that will be necessary anymore. Marriage exists as a gift to us, as a means for our delight in God. Marriages, Christian marriages, are meant to be one of the most tangible reflections of the relationship of God to the church whom he calls his bride. Marriages exist, Christian marriages exist for God's glory, and marriages exist for God's mission. 
and marriage exists for worship. Do you view your marriage or your pursuit of marriage if you're single in that way? Is your current relationship status honoring to God? And is it part of his plan for, for, for marriages? Listen, in terms of our personhood, there's some level of continuity there in the kingdom of God. I'll still be me. You will still be you. And thanks be to God, because of that, because of what Christ did, we will no longer carry the stains of a sin-laden world with us. We will be free to worship God without any fear, without any guilt, without any shame. Eternity is an entire, entirely new reality. Revelation 21.1 says this. This is the Apostle John. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. It's going to be completely different. I was talking about this passage, the, the Mark passage, once back in my youth ministry days uh, with a small group of high school boys. Uh, <laughs> And one of those sweet little dumb boys says this. He goes, hey, I don't know if I can ask you this because, you know, you're like a pastor. But, uh, hey, um, will there be sex in heaven? (laughs) The answer is no. And here's why. Sex is a gift to us. Meant to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. Not before we're married and not outside of our marriages. It is meant as an act of worship to rightly celebrate a God who gives good gifts to us. But as Daniel Aiken says in his commentary, whatever physical, sensual, and sexual pleasure we enjoy in this life will be transcended beyond our imagination in the life to come. Also, there will be no more death. So the human race will not need to be reproduced. And since one of the primary goals of marriage as a way to honor the Lord is to procreate, reproduce, be fruitful, and multiply, marriage then becomes a matter of the past. We will be like the angels, the text says. So we won't be given in marriage or have to be married. I shouldn't say have to be married. Get to be married. I get, I get to be married. <laughs> the text says we'll be like the angels. I'm, I'm going to get ranty again here. Um, the text says we will be like the angels, not angels. Anytime someone dies, at least in my experience, there's always some well-intentioned 9,000-year-old lady that comes up and says, uh, God just needed another angel. And while I think the sentiment is very cute... It is super unhelpful and very unbiblical. Actually, when you consider the scriptures, out of all of God's creation, Ephesians 2, for example, would lead me to believe that out of all of God's creation, he is most fond of us, humans, his children. So why would we want to be angels? The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.12 concerning salvation, concerning grace, the angels long to see and experience what we have seen and experienced in Christ. So we're going to be like angels, but it seems to me that we will be superior to them. 
So we shouldn't be desiring angelic roles. No offense to the angels. They're cool and all. We will join them in worship. They will join us in worship of God. We will be like them only in regards to our marital statuses. So there's that. (laughs) Then Jesus addresses their specific denial of the doctrine of resurrection. Verse 26, he says this. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Again, I don't want to overstate this, but I want this to be a charge, a gentle rebuke even. Hopefully an encouragement. I'm going to be repetitive here for a second because this is so important. If you're going to base your arguments in the Bible, on the Bible, you need to know your Bible. And if you don't feel adequate and equipped in your interpretation of the Bible, first of all, let me tell you again, grace, 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 grace to you. We are all in this together. We are all trying to pursue Jesus together. One of the primary ways, though, that we learn about who God is and his will for our life is to spend time reading his word. And not just reading his word, memorizing it and applying it to every part of our lives. We don't read because we're supposed to, because that's what Christians do. We read because the word of God is powerful, living and active, as it says in Hebrews 4. And there is life in the words of the scriptures. There is life change and intimate relationship with Jesus himself within the scriptures. So Jesus points the Sadducees back to the scriptures, using, interestingly enough to me, using the parts of the Bible that they like to misquote. And he's also affirming every other part of the Old Testament that points forward to a coming resurrected Messiah. He says to them, remember that time when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3? What did he say? He said, I'm the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Another way to read this is this. I am currently the God of Abraham. I am currently, presently the God of Isaac, and now, not past tense, I am, not I was, I am the God of Jacob. These three men, though they died physically, they are alive spiritually. Man, this is covenantal language. A covenant is a, is a pact. It's an agreement between two parties, and the obligations in which you enter into a covenant are mutually binding forever. And we see in Genesis, God makes a covenant to bless Abraham with descendants that can't be numbered. That covenant is not limited to Abraham's children, his offspring, his grandchildren, but has eternal significance for believers. This covenant that God made with Abraham is binding for all eternity. And then God says to Moses, I am this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, eternal, unchanging in nature and character. I love my people and I love my people in spite of them. 
God is committed to his glory, his renown, his praise for all eternity. And because of his glory and his covenantal relationship, he is committed to your good. God is a God who loves, who blesses, who encourages, and who protects his people, not just now, but for all eternity. God's covenant is eternally binding and therefore carries well beyond our physical deaths. Tim Keller explains it this way. Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death on the immortal part of us, our souls. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, at our death scrap that which is precious to him. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees are wrong. And Jesus has silenced his critics yet again. So let me offer us a few things for our consideration as, we're, as we close. Jesus tells the Sadducees, you are quite wrong. Man, when you depart from the scriptures, you are prone to a lot of error. If you are not firm in the scriptures, you will be susceptible to drift in every possible way. As people who are called by God, let us be people who know God, who follow God, who truly follow God, the God of the scriptures. Don't submit yourself to teaching that is contradictory to the entire counsel of the Bible. And you won't know if it's false. You won't know if it's contradictory if you aren't in the Word yourself. What the Bible tells us in Romans 3 is that all have sinned. Not some, but all. All have sinned and fallen short of the standard of holiness that God has set for us. The Bible tells us that because of the sin, because of our missing the mark, there is a penalty against us that demands a payment. And that payment is death. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, who died in our place, paying the payment for us. And the Bible as a whole speaks to this truth, that Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, that Jesus died and that Jesus was resurrected to life. And now because of that, he has given us the Holy Spirit indwelling in us to guide us and to intercede for us by Christ's blood to us. And so now, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are blessed. And not just in the afterlife, but in the here and now. Even when we sin and fall short, because you are going to. God's grace abounds to you. God loves you. Not just your soul, but you, wholly, completely, fully, body and soul. And when you die, your body doesn't just get left to the worms, but it will be gloriously resurrected and fully restored when Jesus returns. You will be raised up if you are in Christ, you will be raised up through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God loves you. God sent his son to die on your behalf to make all of this possible.
in every sense of the word, in every sense, Jesus is the cause of our resurrection. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus is having a conversation and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because Jesus has been raised, if you are in Jesus, your salvation in Jesus is secure and your eternity is sure. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the resurrection, Jesus accomplished the defeating of sin and death on your behalf. So you are loved, you are treasured, and you are secure in Christ. And that's really good news. This life doesn't end with our death. Our death is kind of just the beginning. It's kind of just the beginning of life abundantly. Christ went to the cross to save our souls from the wrath of God and the eternal punishment of death and hell. And then Christ was raised, defeating death forever for those whose faith is in him. There is no guilt in life for the believer. There is no fear in death for the believer. We have nothing to fear because of Christ's love and sacrifice for us. Be encouraged, man. If you're a believer in Jesus, be encouraged. There is eternal life awaiting you in the glory of God. Man, if you don't believe this, I'd implore you, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus who offered himself for the pardon and forgiveness of your sins. Man, I'd invite you this morning to consider Jesus who is calling you away from sin and death, who is calling you away from guilt and shame and fear and condemnation, and who's calling you away from an eternity spent away from his presence in hell. And you too can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, you too can be forgiven because of the cross and because of the resurrection. And I am confident in this. Christ loves you, and He's calling you this morning. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in faith in Jesus. Let's pray.